Welcome to the Be Rad Podcast. It's Brad Kearns. These are our sponsors. Male Optimization Formula with Organs. Brad's Macadamia Masterpiece. Perfect Keto Ketone Supplements. Carol Fit Stationary Bike. Organifi Superfood. Viore Clothing. And Let's Get Check.com Home Testing. And please visit the BradKearns.com shop page for my personal selection of favorite products for health, fitness, and peak performance with great discounts offers and now here we go with the show mofo all of our human existence we've been completely dependent on others in order to get food and shelter of the two big ones and being separated from the tribe is death like you could not survive on your own there's absolutely no way so what i've been thinking about is you know how can i minimize my environmental mismatch how can i design my human zoo in such a way where it's more like the ancestral condition that is mothers and others, the tribe. You know, that's what I've been doing this year is experimenting, I think is an appropriate word, with living with other families, especially other families with young children. I mean, I think most people listening to this will already know, like having granny around like to help with childhood is like super helpful, especially if you get on really well with her. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready for a journey into our ancestral past and our genetic expectations for health and all the disconnects that we talk about in modern life. We're going to take this in a deeper direction, blowing right past eating and exercise into the way that we bond and socialize. Yes, Chris Kelly, the founder, proprietor of the wonderful Nourish, Balance, Thrive Comprehensive Testing and Consultation Program for Health, is now turning his focus beyond food and in in fact, in the first few minutes of the show, we will uh, realize that we've probably talked enough about it. And if you just quit eating junk food, you're going to be okay for the rest of your life. Make good choices. We don't have to split hairs like we've been doing. Same with exercise, right? You get out there and move a lot, do some micro workouts and keep in shape, hit it hard once in a while. You're going to be doing great. Uh, but when it comes to our modern living arrangements, such as the monogamous nuclear family, Chris is going to tell you why that is another genetic disconnect for health. And he's been putting his money where his mouth is and doing some sincere personal experimentation recently, which is cohabitating with another family under the same roof. That's called alloparenting, cooperative breeding. He talks about the science, our ape cousins, the primitive societies in the world that still have some crazy customs. You're going to hear about things like the Catholic Church's marriage family contract from hundreds of years ago in the Middle Ages that pretty much dictates how modern society operates now in the weird industrialized world. And weird is an acronym standing for Western Educated industrialized, rich, and democratic. And in fact, we are in the minority living weird. So what a wild show carrying on to one topic after another that I think will be thought-provoking, if nothing else. Here we go with Chris Kelly of Nourish, Balance, Thrive. Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive. Back on the podcast, we had a wonderful conversation a long time ago, but uh, reliably so, you're out in the outdoors again. So you're our favorite outdoor guest on the podcast. Maybe, maybe the only one, but good for you. Oh, really? Am I? Well, thanks. First of all, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, I, really, you don't have that many people recording outside. 
I have not seen anyone outside except for when you brought the headphones and we both did it standing up outside, which was yeah. the ultimate. So at least I'm standing up, but hey, I'm in a closet with all this foam around me trying to get quality quality audio and you're enjoying the uh, beautiful day in the Santa Cruz Mountains, your home base. I appreciate that that's a position of privilege that not everyone gets to enjoy, but I'm grateful for it. So we have some uh, fun, interesting, off-the-wall topics to discuss. You're always the go-to guy for uh, cutting-edge things. And why don't you tell us uh, what's on your mind lately? Uh, sure. Um, so yeah, I won't repeat the whole story from the, the first episode, but like I think maybe many of your guests, and you, right, like everybody's got their health journey, right? Like there was, there was once a time where I wasn't doing so well, and then I discovered all this ancestral health stuff and I changed my diet and I concentrated on sleeping and maybe I managed stress a bit better and yeah what's moving. interesting I mean just just to um recap a little bit is you were this extremely uh intense athlete who was doing what everybody would think would be super awesome you know you were the right. the guy who uh, worked a hard day in software uh starting really early right and then you're off in the afternoon to go pound that bike and have right. such an amazing productive day from 5 a.m until you drop into bed at nighttime but uh that didn't work out so well for you yeah exactly exactly and you know once you figure out one or two things that weren't working out so well for you it does beg the question of what else am i doing that's not working right <laughs> opening the can of worms i'm exactly. not really actually healthy oh my gosh <laughs> tell me more doctor yeah well i think what it comes down to is that some of the things you would set the defaults for certain life choices and then you realize that they were either inappropriate for you or maybe inappropriate for all humans right <laughs> and so the last seven years of recording the Nourish Balance Thrive podcast has really been an investigation into all those default settings that may have been inappropriate. And of course, ancestral health and evolutionary biology has been a very informative lens through which to look at things. And uh, yeah, you know, we use well, this term environmental mismatch, right? So maybe your diet is mismatched, meaning, you know, the genes that the inputs your genes are expecting are, are not the ones you gave it. And you know, I've now come to the conclusion that humans are everywhere and they eat everything, but there are certain things they absolutely cannot eat. And you know, processed foods, combinations of highly processed fat and carbohydrate, definitely not. Um, industrial seed oils, you've talked a lot about that on the podcast, definitely not. Everything else might be plus or minus, depending on how far you, you know, your ethnicity was from the equator and various other different things. But, um, you know, for me at this point, the, the food thing has become a lot less interesting. And, uh, Hmm. And I started looking at other things. Yeah, I would say you have to agree. Um, it, it seems like we've gone so far down this road and there's, you know, hundreds of books out there about right. some manner of ancestral style eating uh, with paleo in the title or keto right. in the title. And, you know, when we first started back in, uh, it, it, you know, Mark, Mark started the blog in 2006 uh, we wrote the Primal Blueprint in 2008, one of the first books out there about this ancestral diet and ancestral living. And it was fascinating to go onto the, the podcast circuit or the, the airwaves and say, uh, you know, grains aren't actually good for you. And it's, it's right. an amazing insight. Uh, but now, thankfully, the science and the user experience has backed everything up. It's not an incredible revelation. Well, I guess it is for some people that... Um, you know, these foods are okay to eat and uh, you don't have to be scared of red meat if it's grown sustainably and, and naturally. Uh, but yeah, less interesting in terms of we should pretty much be 
uh, you know, dialing these things in by now. So if you're still going to 7-Eleven and grabbing one of the hot dogs for your, your midday snack after a hard day on the job, um, you know, maybe welcome to the podcast and welcome to some of these right. insights if they're out of the blue. But I think for most people that have been living and breathing this stuff, it's like, okay, well, as long as you're not eating junk, you might just want to cut the conversation short there so the, the listener doesn't get bored and right. then, you know, right. look, look further and see how other, other ways you can optimize. And maybe we're guilty of uh, splitting hairs too much and getting right. too obsessed and uptight about it and argumentative about it and all those things. Right. Yeah. I mean, so the way I'd frame it is like, imagine you, Brad, you're the head keeper at London Zoo and you have all these animals from all over the world that you have to take care of. And and say a new species of animal you've never seen before is going to show up. And you've got 10 of them. And you, you, have, you have all these questions, right? That you, like, oh, what am I going to feed them? And that, that's what most people have been talking about, at least since I've been in the ancestral health space. It's like it's a lot of discussion over what you're going to feed these animals, right? You've got, they're in captivity. Yeah. And in their beautiful cages. Right. Okay. So that's the, the next question you might have is, where am I, how am I going to enclose these animals? Do I put them all in the same cage? Do I keep them in separate enclosures? How do I do it? Like, how do you answer those questions? And regardless of what type of animal that you are going to be looking after, like a really great right way to answer that question is, well, how does this animal live in the wild, right? You, you, you know, you're not going to feed the crocodiles hay and, uh, you know, you're not going to keep uh, all the chimpanzees in separate enclosures. You're probably going to look in the wild. Like, how, how do these animals live in the wild? And then you would use that knowledge to inform your decisions about how you would keep the animals in captivity. Now, now of course, the animals I'm talking about that are coming into your zoo are human animals, right? <laughs> like that's, that's the, the main animal that we're interested in here. And, you know, what I see when I look around me in the, the human zoo is a lot of people living in what I would call monogamous nuclear families. Are you, are you familiar with the, any of those terms? Sure. I think we're on board. That's pretty, pretty obvious and been going on for uh, many generations, right? Right. But it is a weird thing. Um, I think I should make that clear. And by weird, I mean not just the sort of descriptor, the adjective, but also uh, weird is an acronym that's used by anthropologists, specifically evolutionary anthropologists and also psychologists, actually. And it's, the acronym is Westernized, Educated, Industrialized, Rich and Democratic weird never heard that wow yeah and it's important to understand because a lot of what we know in the psycho psychology literature and I, I say we like i'm somehow involved in that but of course i'm not i mean they um is tainted by this lens and what i mean by that is you know you quite often see studies where we, you know we took 26 college-age men and asked them a bunch of questions and you know the answers to those questions will be tainted by the fact that these men or women they are in weird societies they live in very specific <laughs> parts of the world that, that tend to be uh, more individualistic more analytical in their thinking and, and less collectivist and so you can spot these people by asking them some simple questions like i might ask you this like you know okay brad imagine we just met for the first time on a bus nobody knows i don't know anything about you you don't know anything about me how would you describe yourself uh i'm a uh a 55-year-old uh, married man with two kids, and I like uh, offbeat sporting activities like high jumping and speed golf. Mm. 
that, that, that's that's less weird than than one might expect given where you live right so um weird people they tend to describe themselves in terms of the the properties of the individual so if you imagine a network of people right like a spider web with like you know each type the the web crosses there's a node there and that node is a single person like weird people tend to describe themselves in terms of the attributes of that individual node they'll say things like I'm a chemistry major. I'm an A-grade student. I'm an engineer. I'm a scientist. I'm a CEO founder. I'm, you know, all these things that describe the individual node as an attribute, rather than what you just said, which is, I'm Ivy's dad. I'm Julie's husband. I'm somebody else's mentor. You know, right? So non-weird societies, that is most of the world, apart from the US, the UK, a few other countries in Northern Europe, Northern Europe, and also Australia and New Zealand, I should add. Chris, say it again. Uh, Westernized, educated, industrialized, rich, and... Democratic. And democratic. Right. Okay. These, these people think in highly individualistic ways. And I think that's reflected in... In fact, I know it's reflected in the way that we live, right? So I'm no different, by the way, right? I live in Santa Cruz and uh, I'm married to so i'm a heterosexual man cisgendered married to a heterosexual cisgendered woman and you know we're married on paper it's a legal agreement binding agreement just the two of us and we have two kids one on the way and we live in one oh. house that's obviously been designed for one family right and we have you know like 1.5 cars you know um there's there's not quite a white picket fence around our house but you know, there could be, you know, and there are many houses in the area that do have a white picket fence. And you might call that a nuclear family, right? So Julie and me are at the nucleus of that family. And then we have however many kids orbiting as, as, as charged particles. And I would argue that this is a highly individualistic way of thinking and completely inappropriate for our human zoo. If you look for back in history, uh, you know, you have to, if you look backwards and look for some wild humans, and unfortunately, it's very difficult to find humans in the wild these days as, as you know you can you can look to hunter gatherers like the harder for example and that might give you some clues about what wild type humans might look like uh, but e even those have been touched right like they've been <laughs> found out and influenced by but heart rate monitors on them and accelerometers yeah. to see how many calories yeah. they burned in the case exactly. of the Hadza. Yeah. And, and, you know, anthropologists have very carefully followed them and counted and weighed everything they eat. And they, they measure their urine with WLE labeled water. And they do all these really fun experiments that have been highly informative. But no doubt these people have been touched. And so, you know, that's what I've been thinking about lately is, well, you know, where are all the environmental mismatches? I, I think we've gone as far as we can go with food. I don't think there's really much more to be gained by optimizing in that direction any further. And, you know, how humans are uh, enclosed in the human zoo is probably a much richer source of optimization. And, you know, to, to think about why, I mean, just think about the epidemic of loneliness. Uh, John, John T. Cachopo has got a fantastic book called Loneliness. Sadly, he is now deceased, but it's a fantastic book. And... I mean, it's an entire catalog of all the really bad things that happen to humans when they're lonely, right? You think for all of our human existence, we've been completely dependent on others in order to get food and shelter, are the, the, the two big ones, right? And 
being separated from the tribe is death. Like you could not survive on your own. There's absolutely no way. Um, there's a, a really great TV show that we love to watch and rewatch. Uh, Bruce Parry, it's called Tribe. And in that, he, he, he gave us this fantastic expression saying that I've, I've since heard many other places, which is uh, the best place to store food is in the belly of your brother. Right? Um, and, and that speaks to the reciprocity of, of humans, right? That, uh, you know, you, you go hunting, I'll go gathering. Uh, some days you'll get lucky, some days you won't. When you do get lucky, you'll bring home the big bonanza that will be too much for you to consume on your own. And the best thing to, for you to do with that excess food is to share it with the rest of the tribe. Because tomorrow you might not be lucky. And then me as a gatherer, I'm going to go out and I'm going to forage and I'm going to dig tubers out of the ground. And that's going to be very reliable. That's going to be a very much more reliable source of calories. And so together we thrive. And on your own, you're dead. And so that's why so many bad things happen to humans when they're lonely. It's because your brain is trying to get you to go find the others. This is a very dangerous situation. And yeah, bad things happen. Our immune system changes. And I think we're seeing an epidemic of it. And in the epidemiological data, being lonely is as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Yeah, I remember quoting some of that book, uh, Di Chopo, what's the author's name? Cachopo. So some Italian is, is, is going to send me a hate yeah. mail for butchering his surname, but I believe <laughs> it's pronounced Cachopo. Yeah. And some of those stats were highly disturbing, obviously uh, driven by uh, technology mobile technology, uh, social media, and ways that we can disengage from live interpersonal interaction, which is obviously so much more valuable and important than uh, digital interaction. Mm -hmm. But I remember some of the stats that, uh, you know, 30 years ago, uh, Americans had an average of 4.5 close friends that they can call their, their tight circle. And now the average is like less than one. In other words, um, if, you, if you take the stats, it's, if it's 0 0.85, that means the average person has less than one, uh, you know, true close friend that they can be a confidant and all those things that, uh, you know, at least having one close friend. And uh, the, the research says that, you know, um, two may be better than one, but certainly at least having you know a small circle that you can uh, count on and rely on um, is essential to survival and, and all the health markers and uh, we're, we're, we're just declining like crazy these days right and of course being in proximity to other people is not really a great predictor of the status of your social connections right and of course I mean I've lived this I've lived in London central London you ride the tube the London underground to work every day you're surrounded by thousands millions of people and yet you can obviously still be lonely and so it's a really terrible problem now if you you couple this with what i've learned from reading the evolutionary anthropologist sarah hurdy have you heard of sarah hurdy uh -uh. her book from 2009 mothers and others is a really stunning beautiful life-changing piece of work that i'd recommend anyone read but especially if you're thinking about having children you have to read Mothers and Others by Sarah Hurdy. It's really fantastic. She spells her name a little bit strangely. It's H-R-D-Y, H-R-D-Y, uh -huh. uh, Sarah Hurdy. And in Mothers and Others, Sarah Hurdy presents the cooperative breeding hypothesis. And this is super duper interesting. So, um, you know, all great apes, they, they reproduce very slowly. And um, take orangutans as, as an example of one of the great apes. It, it reproduces only once every eight years. Eight years, imagine that. 
like nowadays you can bosh out babies once every year, right? Like orangutans can only do it once every eight years. And um, part of the reason for that is that the, 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 the mother infant dyad in orangutans is incredibly strong. And the mother is both possessive and hypervigilant. And the reason they don't let anyone touch their baby is for those reasons, right? It's like, it's not like the, the especially the, the sub-adults, they're, not, they're, they're very interested in holding the baby, but the mother absolutely will not allow it. Like, it seems like a really risky thing for them to do. And so for the first six to eight months of a baby orangutan's life, it clings onto mum, holding onto the fur, right? And that might be important. Like a baby orangutan can hold on by itself. It doesn't necessarily need mum to hold onto it. You know, doesn't need support, especially not once it's a little bit older. And uh, mum gets almost no support from anyone else in uh-huh. rearing the baby. Um, contrast humans. So if you go back and you look at some of these other hunter-gatherer bands, like the Hadza, for example, or the Kung or the Ache, um, they do something different. They, they do something that more closely resembles what we do. They, they reproduce much more quickly. The interbirth interval is much shorter, typically three to four years. So the question then becomes, well, how are they doing this? What makes us different from the other great apes? And, and the answer is alloparents. So I'm not sure. Are you familiar with that term, alloparents? You'll probably see it everywhere now I've said it. Uh, no. So it's a technical term that the anthropologists use, but it, it basically means somebody other than the parents who contributes to child rearing. Right. So that could be a grandparent. It could be an older sibling. In fact, it quite often is an older sibling or a grandparent, especially the maternal grandmother. And this person is very important in child rearing. And even just holding the child is important so that mum can go off and do some foraging and spend more time feeding herself and, and gathering food. And this is the special trick. This is the cooperative breeding that allows humans to reproduce more rapidly, right? It's a very important part of what shaped us into the humans that we are today. Now, the problem is you contrast that to the way that we've set up our lives today. We all live, at least most of the people listening to this podcast, (laughs) I suspect, will be living in monogamous nuclear families, right? It's exactly like the one I already described with, with me and my wife, Julie, right? We're all living in our nuclear family, white picket fence. We do have maternal grandma not too far away but it's an hour round trip in the car and uh, you know my parents are back in the UK right like they're thousands of miles away Um, I mean sure we can try and hire the people that would have formerly been alloparents in my tribe right I could hire au pairs day sitters um, tutors mentors therapists like I can try and hire some of that back if I have enough money but unfortunately I do health coaching for a living. And so I don't have a lot of excess cash <laughs> in order to purchase that additional social support. And so what I've been thinking about is, you know, how can I minimize my environmental mismatch? How can I design my human zoo in such a way where it's more like the ancestral condition that is mothers and others, the tribe, right? And so I don't think I could ever go back. Like I think a lot of people have made straw man arguments against paleotype diets and ancestral living in general by accusing us of a reenactment, right? Like that's a straw man argument. We're not like trying to recreate what cavemen were doing. We're just trying to minimize environmental mismatch with whatever we got available to us. So the, the diet thing is actually very easy to solve, right? I can go into Trader Joe's and eat a Trader Joe's paleo diet. It'll be pretty good, right? But for 
the way that we organize our family lives, the way that we live, the problem is much harder because other people are involved, right? Like, um, and so, you know, that's what I've been doing this year is experimenting, I think is an appropriate word, with living with other families, especially other families with young children. Because I think everybody will agree. Like, I mean, I think most people listening to this will already know, like having granny around like to help with childbearing is like super helpful, especially if you get on really well with her. Um, and obviously there's an economy of scale there. So if you are you know, a family with young kids and I have to look after my kids, then adding your kids will probably make my life easier, right? Like kids generally get along and they like playing with other kids. And so, you know, I could look after your kids while you work and then you could do the same while I'm working. And there's definitely an economy of scale there. And you could say that about a lot of things in your life. Like we own two cars at the moment. One of them's going back soon, but at the moment we've got two cars and you know what? One of them sits idle most of the time. Mm-hmm. So what if we had two families living under the same roof and we only had two cars, then there would be a lot less idle time in, in the car. And the same is true of almost everything in your life. You think about your refrigerator, your washing machine, your tumble dryer, like you've got all this stuff in your life and it mostly sits idle. And your next door neighbor in homes, uh, what have you? Yeah, right. And uh, there's no, you know, there's an economy of scale there that by adding more people, you can share more. And of course, think about food. Like how much easier is it to batch cook? Mm -hmm. You know, when my wife is a fantastic cook and she does almost all of the cooking. And, you know, when she cooks dinner, like whether she's cooking dinner for just us four or whether she's doing it for eight, it really doesn't make that much difference. There's an economy of scale there. So, you know, that's what I've been trying this year is like trying to live with other families to see if we can both A, minimize environmental mismatch and then B, improve efficiency. Right. So it is actually a mismatch from, uh, our, our, from, from a genetic perspective. And I think most people uh, only have a historical reference point of civilized society. So they're thinking back to, um, you know, three generations or, or, or 10 generations right. and thinking that's the entire human experience. But right. you're saying it's, you know, we're naturally inclined to live in hunter gatherer bands because we did that for, uh, what is it, you know, thousands of generations for 2 million yeah. years of evolution. And now, you know, just like when we started eating grains and the civilized food, we also, you know, went toward uh, today's norm of the uh, isolated nuclear family rather than the band. And the bands, I believe, uh, numbered a maximum of 150. That's some of the research from Dunbar right. uh, that, you know, when, when they gathered as a um, the largest the largest band would be in the wintertime when they hunkered down. It might number 150 total people. But then generally, uh, we roamed in smaller bands of uh, 15 to 30 is some of the research that I've, right. I've referenced. And so there's always uh, far more than one nuclear family roaming around looking for food and living the human life until right. uh, recent times. Right. Well, I'm, I'm very glad that you brought this point up. This is, this is an excellent point. So, you know, the question is, well, how long? Well, you know, so in her book, Sarah Hurdy makes a, a suggestion. You're like, so when, when, did, when did our ancestors start to lose their fur? You know, like th- there is some <laughs> last common ancestor and it probably had fur much like a bonobo or a chimpanzee, right? And it's 1.8 million years ago, our ancestors started to lose their fur. So that might give you some clues because without fur, you can't, the baby can't really cling on by themselves, especially not in the early days. So, I think it's likely from reading Sarah Hurdy that it, we've been, the cooperative breeding has been going on for at least 1.8 million years. And you think, I mean, how long 
has the nuclear family been a thing? Well, we know exactly how long. Um, I've just been reading Joseph Henrik's new book, The Weirdest People in the World. That's how I know about the acronym WEIRD. And the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages had something they called the Marriage and Family Program. And it was a campaign against polygamy and cousin marriage. So still to this day, the rate of cousin marriage in the world is about 0.2% in the UK, people who marry their cousins. How many? 0.2% in the UK. But in, up to, in some areas, the, the rest of the world, it's up to 25% of people marry their cousin. And, and I can see the, on the look on your face, you're really surprised by this. But would it surprise you again? I know this from reading Robert Sapolsky's work. He has a fantastic book called Behave. That from an evolutionary biology perspective, remember that evolution is descent with modification. You're not starting again from scratch, right? Like when something evolves, it didn't just come out of nowhere. It's a minor modification to something that already existed. And it turns out that sixth cousin is the optimum diversity for evolution by natural selection. So you would actually want to marry someone that was somewhat related. I mean, of course, everybody on the planet is related to you in some sense, but sixth cousin, it turns out, is optimum for biology. That's pretty far removed and probably to the point where yeah. we don't even know. We, we, may, right. we may have more cousin marriages than we think if we go right. into the um, Ancestry.com and, and, and spit in the tube and then see, see all your family tree coming. Right, absolutely. So what I'm trying to tell you is that our current living configuration, including mine, this decision to live with one woman under one roof with N children and our own car and our own white picket fence, that is the result of a campaign that was run by the Catholic Church in the Middle Age against marrying your cousin, polygamy, which is one man having multiple wives. And the, the reason for this was pretty simple. It was in the interest of the Catholic Church. So the, the way that things work is that it, you pass down your inheritance to your heir, which in a patriarchal system is your, your son and heir, right? But just the way that biology works at some point each family will not produce a son and heir and at that point well what happens to your inheritance you can't pass it on so traditionally what would happen is you would just take another wife you would carry on trying until you produce a son and heir and no one had any problem with that and I have some problems with the patriarchal system but that's the way that it worked and then another option and perhaps this would be an option of last resort was you would adopt a son and heir, right? You would pick someone and you would adopt them. And it's interesting to note that legal adoption didn't appear in the UK until 1920 something, it actually appeared a bit earlier in US law, but it's really quite a modern phenomena to adopt somebody into your family. So um, what the Catholic church did was it outlawed all of those things. You, couldn't, you could only have one partner, you weren't allowed to divorce them, you weren't allowed to adopt anyone, you weren't allowed to take another wife, right? And so what would happen to your money if you couldn't pass it on to the next generation? Oh, I would go to a wonderful nearby charity, probably. Exactly. You could donate it to the church. How fantastically convenient that is. And then um, go to heaven forever. I guess you get a certificate. Thank you for yeah. your donation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And of course, there's that other story is that, um, you know, a, a camel is more likely to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man into heaven, right? Like it's, it's something you probably heard as well, right? So, you know, this was what rich people did was they would keep the money until they died and then they would donate it to the church and so they could get into heaven. But obviously, and then this was like a great cash cow for the, for the Catholic church. 
And, uh, you know, they, they, they obviously raised a lot of money this way. And if you didn't like the rules, they could excommunicate you. And what that meant was that basically nobody else in your community could transact with you or know you or have anything to do with you in any way, unless you were actively working to to get forgiveness right and so th this is where it came from like this is you know researching this stuff so I'm like well how did I make this decision anyway like I don't remember making a decision it was just the reasonable default that was in place when I started I met someone and I started having kids but you know the same thing happened to me with the diet right like I just accepted the reasonable default I got my education from the BBC and I listened to that interview with the cardiologist where he said that fat was bad and carbohydrates were good and you should not eat fat and you should eat more carbs right and like and that didn't really work out very well for me and I guess I did the same thing with my family arrangement right like I, I was I was told that <laughs> too late take... now pal yeah. sorry <laughs> Whoops! Why did I marry just one wife? Wait a second. California only allows one wife. We should have got married some some island somewhere with the Aceh perform a ceremony in Paraguay. Right. I don't know. Yeah, and so I should make it clear at this point. You know, up until now, I've I've only mentioned uh, polygamy, and I, I'm not trying to advocate polygamy. And uh, you know, to, for people that are not familiar with that term, that means like a man taking more than one wife, but other alternatives exist. So for example, polyandry is very common, even in modern hunter gatherers. And that means that the wife takes more than one husband. Hmm. And in fact, still to this day, something they call partable paternity is common. And what partable paternity means is that people believe that sperm from more than one man is required to make a baby. They think the baby is made of the composite of all of the sperm from all the different men and in order to gain the attributes of all of these men you have to have sex with all of them they don't understand basic genetics you think that's really modern technology the ability to do that spit test that you mentioned earlier and find out who the dad is that didn't come along until the 1950s nobody knew and so the concept of partable paternity is common and and so men would tolerate Still you know, today, you're saying in these primitive societies, you can the, see it. Like, go watch, yeah. um, go watch Tribe by Bruce Parry, mm -hmm. and you you will see he meets women who and men who believe that this is the case that you have to have sex with more than one man in order to produce a baby that has the best attributes of those men. And so, it's not just polygamy. There are other alternatives like polyandry uh, also exist, but certainly not monogamy. That is definitely not the ancestral condition and indeed almost no animal in the world is truly monogamous like and by monogamous i mean lifelong sexual and emotional exclusivity even animals like penguins you know they love to make these nature documentaries about the emperor penguins and dad sits on the egg for however many months uh. and the freezing arctic winds and you know like and, and then finally they exchange places and you're supposed to get all gooey about how, how wonderful the monogamous, like the devotion and the suffering. But the truth is that penguins only mate for one season. And then next year, it's a completely different partner. So it's not really monogamy in the lifelong exclusivity sense, but more like serial monogamy, which is actually more like what most people do, right? Most people do what you might call serial monogamy. That's what my parents did. They had multiple partners, uh, but there was exclusivity in that sequential period. Uh, is there some uh, controversy dispute on this topic, Chris? I know uh, Wendy Walsh, the evolutionary psychologist, who's been on the show, and she talks about how we, uh, you know, we have a natural inclination toward monogamy. Uh, maybe she's talking about serial monogamy. 
Uh, but I, I wonder, I know Christopher Ryan's book, Sex at Dawn, was addressing this topic too, uh, you know, our, our basic biological nature versus the the social and cultural conventions, like you mentioned, the Catholic Church throwing down hundreds right. of years ago. And so we've been programmed like that for a good long time to where um, maybe, you know, maybe not many people are second guessing this. I know some are, there's a big movement for the open relationships and all that these days. Right. Uh, but I wonder where, you know, the, the balance point is between, um, you know, our, our genetics and our cultural programming. Right. I mean, I think there's a tendency for scientists to fill in the gaps with their own personal experience. And this is definitely true of Darwin, right? Darwin thought that your mother was a whore. And what I mean by that, I mean, Christopher Ryan has a really great chapter in his book all about this. Darwin thinks your mother was a whore. And it's sometimes referred to as Helen Fisher. You hear people cite Helen Fisher and her sex contract, right? Is that, you know, it's like the, the cliched woman exchanges sexual exclusivity in return for protein and security and shelter. And if you read Sarah Hurdy, you'll see that it just doesn't work like that, right? Mm. Like the particle paternity model is just not like that. And, you know, of course, there's some special relationship between the infant, the infant and the mother, but really it's mothers and others. So the child has secure attachment, not just to mum, but to other alloparents. And you know, dad's relative contribution is what they call facultative, right? Facultative fatherhood. Sarah Hurdy writes about that. And the reason this is interesting for your MOFO project is um, dad's facultative role, right? So um, in the absence of adequate social support, humans are super interesting. Humans are the only animals or the only primate, actually not quite the only primate, but one of the few primates that will abandon an infant given inadequate social support. Right. So no, uh, most other primates won't do this. And you'll see this on TV, right? Like the, uh, the, the tragedy of the mother monkey that's carrying around a dead or deformed infant that clearly isn't going to make it. Humans are not like that. Humans will abandon a baby. And they call this maternal ambivalence. This is maybe the dark side of cooperative breeding. And even to this day, you know, they don't really like to talk about it. So it's difficult for anthropologists to interview hunter-gatherers and get them to talk about this. But say for some reason, you know, the baby is born and it doesn't have the right number of fingers or toes or it's of the wrong sex, right? Like maybe you're gunning for a boy for some reason and it turns out to be a girl. Or maybe you just don't have enough social support. Then humans will abandon a baby in the bushes. Hopefully, but, at, the, uh, hopefully at the steps of the hospital or the fire department, fire station. Well, yeah. I mean, not for hunter-gatherers, not for the Kung or the Akshay or the Hadza, for example, right? Like they just will leave a baby in the bushes, like given, oh. given inadequate social support, uh, because it's so crucial to the survival of the infant. Now, there is one line of uh, buffering here, shall we say, and that's the facultative paternity. So given inadequate social support, then dad can and will step in to provide some of that social support that should have been mothers and others, the other parents that should have been there, the maternal grandmother, the older sibling, whoever it is. It could be anyone, it could be a cousin, it could be an uncle, but generally the maternal grandmother and the younger siblings, especially girls, are particularly interested in holding the baby. And so they do a lot of this alloparenting. But if dad does have to step in, there is what you might call reverse thrust. You're probably familiar with some of these feedback mechanisms 
uh, that exist uh, inside of the individual organism. So think about reverse T3, right? Like you've had uh, L. Russ talk about this in thyroid, right? Like you don't just have the gas pedal, you also have the brake. And the same is true at the level of the organism, right? So when dad steps in with his facultative parenting, and I've actually seen these people on the beach. If you go to the, the beach in Hawaii and uh, check out um, some of the parenting that's going on on the beach there, you, like, you, you get to see the moves, right? Like the, these dads that are holding a baby and they've got a bottle in one hand, you know, like an, uh, an, an, a rag over their shoulder and, and they're there in just their swimsuit. And you, you can see these guys, they've got like dad bod, you know, like they've got boobs and uh, they've got love <laughs> handles and all that kind of stuff. And I think in that case, there are going to be measurable endocrinological changes in these men, right? So you'll see increased prolactin, which is a hormone associated with brooding in birds and um, lactation in mammals. And then, and then the, the flip side to that is decreased testosterone. This is reverse thrust, right? So in the absence of proper social support, and where dad has to step in, the last thing you want to do is make more babies, right? <laughs> so even interacting with a pregnant woman is going to decrease your testosterone. So if you're, you know, like, if you're like one of these guys, all you want to do is increase your testosterone. Maybe you don't care about all of this. Well, actually, you do care about this because one of the ways that you can increase your testosterone is to improve your social support. And so you don't have to be in that nurturing role. You can be out hunting and uh, doing the testosterone boosting activities. I mean, John Gray talks about this with his relationship dynamics, where if you're too uh, lovey-dovey and you're your wife's number one confidant, where she can uh, right. vent to you about her, her stressful day and talk and talk and do these things that are uh, naturally not testosterone boosting, um, you're going you're gonna to actually decline. Uh, due to the nature of your relationship being the end all rather than having the, the larger community, for example, uh, having the, the, the classic uh, ladies uh, gathering connecting group, the book group or the, the hair salon where they can gossip all day long and love it and nurture right. their estrogen levels. And the man's, the man's way to nurture testosterone is to go out there and try to conquer the environment, solve problems, tinker with the motorcycle in the garage, do a workout, play a video game, watch a sporting event, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I, w I really wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, you have to be careful. You know, I think there are gender differences, but I worry a little bit about reinforcing the hell out of these gender differences. You know, like, oh, this is what men do. This is what women do. And then you, when you yeah. start to oppress people and force them into things that they would rather not be doing just based on the gender, then clearly that's problematic. But from a biological perspective, what you said is just right. And it's true in other animals as well. So take, for example, in lions, really dad's job after passing on the gamut cells is to prevent infanticide. That's what the male lions do in terms of reproduction. And what happens when those males get to place by some other males? Well, the first thing they do is kill all the cubs. Now, Ooh. the reason they kill all the cubs, I mean, you've seen this on TV, I'm sure. Like if you watch nature documentaries, you see this, all the cubs get killed. And the reason they get killed is because then they stop breastfeeding, right? Like mom is no longer lactating. And when, as soon as she stops lactating, she comes back into estrus. And so the invading males increase the chances they're going to pass their DNA onto the future by killing the cubs. That's the only reason they're doing it. They're not doing it because they're evil. They're doing it because it increases their reproduction. They somehow rates. knew deep down. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's wild. Yeah. yeah and I think, I, think um, I think the same is true in my dogs. You know, when I, uh, when I roughhouse with my uh, young kids, I've got a two-year-old boy. 
Uh, and it's interesting. He doesn't do it. My dogs don't do it so much with my older seven-year-old girl, but certainly the two, but they did when she was younger, right? Like when I start roughhousing with him, my dogs just lose their mind. Like they can't stand it. They start chasing their tails and they bark aggressively at me. And I think that they see themselves as part of my family. And what my dogs are trying to do is like, they think I'm going to kill the baby and they're trying to prevent infanticide, which is what they would do in their pack, right? Like that's the only job. Like they don't hold the baby. They don't feed the baby. They don't, you know, like the main thing they do is prevent infanticide. Whew, we got a lot to uh, unwind here. And I think that's good. You make that distinction between um, the advancing culture and the acceptance of the, you know, the modern male who is more than one dimensional and actually can care for a baby on the beach in Hawaii while his partner <laughs> goes for a swim or learns to stand up paddle. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, I referenced John Gray. He's, t- he's talking about our basic biological drives and how they're in conflict with the advancement of culture and the exiting of these traditional roles that the female is supposed to be uh, home, taking care of young ones, nurturing and uh, making food and, and all that. And the males out there are supposed to be earning a living. Of course, we've transcended that now. And most people would agree that's a positive, but we do have to respect how this is in conflict with our, our basic biological drives. Right, right. Yeah. I hate to di- deny the biological differences, but I also hate to reinforce gender roles. I mean, you use that term staying at home here, but if I was to go back to, you know, looking at hunter-gatherers, especially the harder, the, you know, so I interviewed Kristen Hawkes on my podcast and she has a seminal paper I'd recommend anyone read. It's called Hardworking Harder Grandmothers. And, you know, she was the original author for the, the grandmother hypothesis that, that, that in a nutshell, what it means is that, you know, humans have this really strange um, postmenopausal longevity, right? So, you know, you get to 40, you stop having your own baby. So why is that? You li- like you spend a third of your life non-reproductive. What, that does, what, like, why would you do that? Like chimpanzees don't do that. Like, uh-huh. They're basically fertile till the day they die. So what is it about humans? So what Kristen Hawkes' work has shown, proven even, I'm going to use that word proven, like I'm almost suspicious of people when they use the word prove, because <laughs> you can't generally prove anything in the natural sciences. When someone's talking about mathematics, you can prove something, but Usually people say, well, there's evidence to support this hypothesis or to, to deny this hypothesis. But with Kristen Horst's work, they actually have a mathematical model. And I think the word prove is, is, is justified here. And uh, what this work shows is that after the age of 35 or so, your reproductive fitness increases if you stop having your own babies and you start investing in your daughter's uh, kids, right? So this is maternal grandmother especially the maternal grandmother is the evolutionary ace in the hole is what Kristen Hawkes would say you start investing in your daughter's kids right and that is what's going to maximize the function that is getting your DNA into the future right so that's the grandmother hypothesis wow um so but yeah uh, the paper is called hardworking hardworking grandmother sorry hardworking hardser grandmothers and the reason is these grandmothers are doing way more work than anyone else in the tribe. They are going out and they are digging tubers out of the ground with a stick. And they find these tubers like tapping on the ground. They have all these crazy skills that I could not even dream of having that they use to extract calories out the ground to make more babies. And they are not at home, like watching daytime TV, right? Like they're out and about, you know, quite often. And this is true of mum as well, that they'll strap the infant to an eight-year-old allo parent and then they go off gathering right and so you know i don't i don't think like this idea of like mum stays at home and like 
you know, does nothing or just looks after the kids. It's just like, yeah, I mean, it's certainly not true in hunter gatherers. Interesting. So, you know, we, we started talking about how we can optimize our diet today. Uh, we're, we're not asking you to go out and hunt for all your food, but there's strategies we can use to try to minimize the evolutionary disconnect with what's at the supermarket because you can buy good stuff and bad stuff at the supermarket, right? right. The same for exercise. Now we lift weights that have numbers on them and go on a bar. And right. that's to replace the idea that we don't have to make a new shelter every few weeks right. from, from the ground up. Uh, but with this, uh, this familial dynamics and uh, especially curious about the, um, the disconnect between uh, monogamy, which is kind of the norm, and if we're evolutionarily wired to, to be something else, um, what are some strategies that we can do to manage that? Uh, you're trying out living with uh, a, another family under the same roof. Uh, not a lot of people are equipped or maybe even interested in that. Uh, so where do we go from, from this point if we want to optimize our, our genetic attributes? Right. I mean, I'm not sure I have any practical advice, but in my experience, once you understand the problem, solutions start to arise, right? So I can tell you what I've been trying. I've been trying to live with another family underneath the same roof. And it's difficult. I mean, as I think many people listening to this podcast will know, that the way we live our, the way we live our lives is so different now from most people that we meet on the street. It's really hard. Can you imagine just grabbing some random family off the street that are still eating? <laughs> Craigslist. Yeah, I mean, like cereal for breakfast, sandwich for lunch, pasta for dinner. Like the house is like riddled with things that you would rather die than put in your body, you know, like <laughs> canola oil and, and soybean and all, and all the rest of it. And, you know, as soon as it gets dark, they put on all the halogen spotlights and it's like brighter inside the house at night than it is during the day. And like, it's just a, I mean, a complete disaster, you know, like, and so, you know, how do you reintegrate? How do you, how do you find another family where, you know, it's going to work? You're all living underneath the same roof. And I, in, in my experience so far, it's been an insurmountably difficult task, right? To, to reverse, you know, so, that, that, so the marriage family program in the Middle Ages by the Catholic Church was very successful in getting us weird people to live in monogamous nuclear families. And in my recent experience, undoing that is devilishly difficult. And so, you know, so what's the solution? Well, something I've been thinking about is, you know, so how do you, how do you create a buffer between you and those other families? Right. So living underneath the same roof is probably too tight of an interface. And maybe what I need is something that would more resemble a ski house. Right. So you're up in Tahoe. There's a bazillion of these giant 5,000 square, 5,000 square foot houses. Right. Everybody's got their own space. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a ridiculous. breeze like, now. I don't care yeah. how many kids you've got. That's just like way too much space for one family. And so maybe you could take one of those giant ski lodge type houses. And usually they're on a pretty good parcel size right like the property might be five acres or something i don't know but big enough to where you could put a constellation of tiny homes imagine that like so you've got this one big house in the middle and then you have this constellation of tiny homes surrounding the one big ski house and then the big ski house is your communal space where the shared kitchen is and then maybe some of the other rooms are also have 
devoted activities uh, for them. So, so imagine, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're into woodworking or something, and maybe you'd like to have some really expensive equipment that you couldn't possibly justify owning by yourself. Well, imagine if you had, I don't know, five other families that you were living with. Well, suddenly it like becomes financially, financially reasonable and justifiable for you to have that special 3D, whatever it is, CAD CAM machine that you've always wanted for your woodworking thing. And you have that in one of the rooms in the ski house. And then, you know, I know there's, there's probably like, you know, several rooms that are devoted to things like that. And then, you know, you can still retire away, you know, like when it gets too crazy, like, I don't know, you, you should come and spend time with my two-year-old boy. He's like a Tasmanian devil and he likes to throw things and break things and hurt people. It's like, <laughs> and it's just a phase, right? Like he'll get over it, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be tricky to live with him in close proximity for extended amounts of time. And so maybe you want some and maybe you could say that about me as well like I'm pretty obnoxious to like to live with like on a full-time basis so <laughs> maybe you want some place to retire away from me and my son you can just go back to your tiny home and you know maybe you've got like a little office in there maybe your bedroom's in there but it's a space that you have a private space that you can retire to and then you know so then the question becomes well how do you get this thing started and, and that again is a, like a really tricky thing you're never going to persuade a bunch of people that they should give up their monogamous nuclear family maybe you know, like maybe if you can just forget about the monogamy part maybe you can just stay monogamous but you just give up your nuclear family and then move into this you know, shared space the ski lodge with the tiny houses and I, so i think the way that you'd have to do it is that you do it like a timeshare, right? So you'd have a cooperative, some sort of business vehicle that would own the property, including the tiny homes, and then you would sell a timeshare to this place. And so then you could go there as often you wanted. Maybe it was like, maybe only once a month in the beginning, you just go and you spend, I don't know, a few days there, and then you go home and you know somebody else takes your spot. And then if you like it, you can maybe buy some additional time and you spend more time there. And if you don't like it at all, you can just sell your timeshare, right? Like, and somebody else takes your place. And so then slowly, gradually, I think you're going to find that, you know, when, especially when you're trying to homeschool your kids, remember, like my kids go to forest school and they spend all their time outdoors playing in nature. Oh, and boy. That seems like a really attractive option versus trying to homeschool on Zoom right now. Like, you know, I think you'll find that it's like more fun to spend time at the ski lodge with the tiny home than it is in your monogamous nuclear family on Zoom with the homeschooling thing. And so maybe you decide that you want to spend more time in this uh, shared timeshare. And you can do that. You can just like gradually up and up the, up the time. And then maybe one day it would be your exclusive deal. Yeah, especially to prevent loneliness. I mean, this is right. no joke. I think that's what the uh, senior living communities are aspiring right. to do is to have that communal dining, not only for the convenience of someone who's elderly and has trouble preparing and shopping for their own meals, uh, but you know, getting that much needed social interaction, a forced social interaction, because you live in a place where they're serving dinner downstairs instead of you're in, in your deluxe 5,000 square foot home that uh, you're, you're living in with zero, one or two people instead of uh, 12 or whatever could fit there. So it's right. interesting. Uh, so you left the monogamy part out. Do you think that's like too much of a stretch? Yeah, or too, I wonder. It's, 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 it's where I lose most people. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's so popular now, Chris, this, this kind of cool, trendy movement to have uh, open relationships. And there's been a lot right. of podcast content about that. And it seems like um, an incredible uh, stressor and hassle. But people are, are doing it in the name of, I guess, uh, just like your social experiment, where you're throwing another family under the same roof. So I, I wonder, um, what do you think of that movement? Or Yeah, I mean, so the reason I started looking at Sex at Dawn and polyamory and 
all of these interesting things. There's some really good books I recommend. One is Opening Up, and it's a female author, and I can never, I think it's Tormi Eno or something, like I could never pronounce her surname. And uh, there's another book called The Ethical Slut I'd recommend. And <laughs> You're full really of book title, recommendations. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, so it's like something to think about. It's like, I would start at Sex at Dawn. If you don't have your why clear, then the how-to won't be of much interest to you. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a huge change for most people. And I think it's mostly jealousy. But I think Chris Ryan has been really good on this. If you take, so imagine it, um, you know, so if, if you were jealous of your wife being with another man, like if you take away fear from that emotion, mm-hmm. what's left? There's nothing left. Like if it's in a, a world of abundance where there's always more for you, like there's no... There's no expectation of exclusivity. There's no way you can actually lose something. You know, it's mm-hmm. only when you lose it do you have this generally unwanted emotion of jealousy. Um, so, right. Inadequacy. Yeah, all, all your fears come up when you know your wife's with another man that night right. because that's how the plan's working out. And, you know, I, I listen to these, these guys sharing their stories and, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's kind of uh, an exercise in... Um, you know, strength of character, emotional maturity, and things like that. So I don't want to discount it like out of hand, uh, but it does open up the uh, the concept that everything is a choice. And Wendy Walsh makes a great point uh, of this, saying that you know today there's no real rules in relationships like there was uh, you know two generations ago, where if you started fornicating, you were most likely expected to get married because you were going to get pregnant or whatever's going you on. You get excommunicated, and, right? Your children yeah, all will that be stuff. regarded as illegitimate. You bring yeah. shame on your family and yeah. you'd be excommunicated, cast out. Whereas, yeah, n- right. now maybe you can still be religious and not be oppressed by the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. The Middle Ages. And so, you know, if everything's a choice, it, it kind of makes it uh, beautiful in a way that uh, if you do engage in a monogamous relationship, uh, it, it really does mean something because maybe it's counter to your biological drives and therefore you're going to uh, show some uh, restraint and resilience to maintain your commitment rather than just be uh, animal instinct, like a dog that wants to go over and, and hump the neighbor's dog. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, you, I mean, you just can't deny these biological urges, though. There's something that I think every man should know about. It's called the Coolidge effect. And it explains perfectly why Tiger Woods would like, oh, make all these Tell me terrible, more, please. Yeah, ter- terrible relationship decisions. And you could say the same of Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Like he's like married to, you know, a very beautiful why would he like i don't know like you should google those images like as a dude like would you do that like it doesn't make a lot of sense to me like so what has she got that you know your your primary partner doesn't have and there's a very simple answer to this and it's she's different that's all it is she's different and uh, that's the I, coolidge effect that's the coolidge effect is yeah, that named after uh, a president or some some cool dude that it, went it out there is, and- it is and i'm not going to be able to i'll butcher it's worth looking up the story of uh the coolidge effect and, and the president there's like some funny story like um i'm not i'm not even going to go there you'll have to look it up it involves chickens and frequency of copulation and the the president's wife saying something about oh you should tell the president how often they have sex and then the president says oh you should tell mrs coolidge like that 
that the cockerel is not having sex with the same hen every time. Like it's, it's something like that's how it got its name. And it's not very well studied in the literature, but I think it's one of those things that doesn't need a great deal of evidence for people to know that it's true. You know, that you are attracted to other people just because they're different. And this does have an explanation in evolutionary biology. And that's just, just a protection against in incest and inbreeding, right? So imagine, I mean, people are generally not attracted to people they grew up with, right? So if you went to kindergarten with that person, you may, huh. you're probably not attracted to them in, as adults, even though that you're not related at all. And that's just uh, inbuilt to protect against inbreeding because that can be potentially disastrous for getting your DNA into the future, which is the name of the game after all. And so another potential um, protection against that is you just tend to be attracted to other people. Right. And so you know, I've been this, with this person a while. It's possible related. I'm just going to move on. And, be, and that's like, again, it's optimizing for getting your DNA into the future. Uh, and that goes both ways, as you talk about with the uh, primitive female, primitive tribes that don't understand uh, modern genetics and the females trying to get uh, the athletic attributes into her egg, right. as well as the, the smartest guy in the clan, as well as the most, uh, you know, the, the kind and, and, and loving. And so uh, I, I've read that research a little bit. It's, it's kind of right. amazing where they, you know, they're attributing this wonderful child to uh, the great attributes of the five different fathers. Yeah. Do, you know, do you know what? They, they kind of have it right in a sense, though. Like I, there is, there is correct um, as we are, and I say we, meaning like my simple understanding of reproductive biology, because what's really going on in reproduction in humans, and you can, Chris Ryan has been super good on this, is that the competition is happening at the level of the gamete cell, right? So you think about gorillas, which are polygamous, right? They have a harem, you have the silverback, who's the alpha male, and generally only he gets to reproduce. The others like are duking, you know, like they're waiting for their turn at the <laughs> top as the alpha, right? So the competition between organisms is happening at the level of the organism. They're literally duking it out with fists. Whereas in humans, and this is what Chris Ryan argued, is that the primary purpose of sex in humans is non-reproductive, it's for bonding. And so, you know, I did interviews with Sue Carter on oxytocin, where she talks about this, like that the primary purpose of sex is to facilitate bonding between individuals. And the competition is happening at the level of the gamut cell, right? So humans, they have external descending testicles that are ridiculously over-engineered for what they need to do. Contrast the gorilla that doesn't have external testicles, right? What are testicles? What is your scrotum? Well, it's a beer fridge. Like the reason you'd have a beer fridge is because at any moment you're expecting a party, right? And you want cold beer when the opportunity <laughs> arises. You, want, you don't want to have to wait for the, the beer to get cold, right? You want it in the fridge ready to go. And that's what de descending testicles are for. And, you know, so the competition is happening at the level of the gamut cell. You're having sex with her. He's having sex with her. Everybody's having in the tribe gets to have sex with her. And then the sperm, they duke it out at that level, at the level of the gamut cell. And it's survival of the strongest sperm. So in a sense, the hunter-gatherers kind of have it right. And, um, you know, there's some recent evidence that's emerged in this, like in immunology, where um, the, the egg actually has some choice in the matter here too. It has like the female immune system prefers some sperm over others. And what confused the scientists was that the preference was not always for their partner's sperm. Huh. That's funny. Like, why would you not prefer your partner's sperm? It's almost as if you had access to all the sperm. Ha! Huh. Well, that's funny, isn't it? Like, that's how science proceeds, right? It's like not a eureka moment. It's a ha, huh, that's funny moment. And of course, these scientists have the same 
bias as we do it's like oh well humans are monogamous and uh, you know we live in nuclear families and, and and so you know this must be we must have got it wrong we should redo this experiment and like figure out how this really works and just confirm our bias but yeah so that's my argument and that was chris ryan's argument that's where i learned it from was that the primary purpose of sex in humans is non-reproductive and the competition happens at the level of the gamut cell and not at the level of the organism wow Okay, a lot to digest. And so, <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> I guess if we want to take some baby steps here in exploring uh, how to be more connected to our, our, our genetic expectations for health uh, along the lines of bonding, communing, and all that, mm-hmm. uh, you gave that, that great ski lodge analogy, so we can work on building the cabins and, and all that, but uh, in everyday life and you know, not right. requiring a ton of resources, maybe it's um, bringing in uh, more people into your parenting experience could be one idea that comes to mind, like you know, uh, wanting to um, drop the kids off at the uncle at, at uncle and aunt's house for uh, four days instead of always having the nuclear family, you know, on right. this tight tight wire of doing everything uh, themselves and you know, kind of not not blending out as much maybe. And even with um, couples, uh, you know, you're going to you're going to say no to the um, open relationship experiment. You can listen to a podcast instead and learn all about it and live vicariously. But I guess you could, um, you know, kind of interact in a larger group and do things with uh, four couples instead of one as part of your experiment to just, you know, nurture these social connections that seem to be getting more streamlined and, and more narrow these days. Right. I mean, obviously, it's super tough, isn't it? Everything I've just said, and then in, in the COVID times. I mean, yeah, that's. I mean, that's yeah, part, that too. But yeah, we'll, it's been so terribly we'll hard. Who wants to meet up? This show family. lasts forever, so we can play it later when everything's it, open it, again. Exactly. This too shall pass. No, I mean, so I, I don't disagree with anything you said, but for me personally, and I think this is going to be true for other people too. Like the first step is to get really clear on your value system, right? Like that's the, you have to understand this intellectually. Like read some of the books I've mentioned, Sarah Hurdy, Chris Ryan, uh, Kristen Hawkes doesn't have a book, but she's been on my podcast where she gives you much of what she's learned over the past four decades. Uh, maybe opening up is, is another one. And then, you know, there's an exercise from acceptance and commitment therapy called uh, the value guided exercise i think it's called value guided actions exercise if you google that acceptance and commitment therapy you'll find it and the purpose of the exercise is to get clear on what it is that you value like what is it exactly that you value in life in personal development in relationships in health in everything else like there's these quadrants on a dartboard and you get really clear on what it is that i value in life and then I think about the, all the decisions, all the actions that I take, are they moving me closer towards the bullseye or are they moving me off the board completely? And it, it, it just makes everything just much easier to navigate. And I think that would be my recommendation as a first step if you're listening to this. It's like get really clear, like for me, obviously, like understanding ancestral health and minimizing environmental mismatch is very, very important to me. And if it weren't, then a how-to guide on opening up your marriage and live, you know, breaking down the nuclear family is who care? I'm not going to care about that until I get really clear on what it is that I value. Yeah, well said. I think we kind of just dismiss these things or, or don't think about them at all because we're just programmed into our, you know, cultural norms starting with the Catholic Church's marriage and family contract hundreds right. of years ago, and we never, ever give them a second thought. Uh, but it's kind of exactly. nice to 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I've just Googled it. It's the Values Guided Action Worksheet. And you'll find it on thehappinesstrap.com. Russ Harris has some fantastic books on acceptance and commitment therapy. It's a, bit like, it's a bit like CBT. You've probably heard of cognitive and behavioral therapy. It's a bit like that, only better. <laughs> and by the way, CBT is the stoicism. But I'd highly, I'd highly recommend acceptance and commitment therapy and, and Russ Harris's work and do this value guided action worksheet and like figure out what it is that's important to you. And maybe none of this matters, but until you do the exercise. Right. I finished my questionnaire, Chris, and I could give a crap about any of this. And I'm yeah. going to stick here with my, my yeah. nuclear family. And yeah, not exactly. Give it a I'm, just, I'm just going to accept the values that were given to me by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. Right. I'm, I'm all on board. Thank you. Thank you, Catholic <laughs> Church Middle Ages. Yeah. I, I hereby donate my entire estate to uh, yeah. the church, so I don't have to think about that either. I don't uh-huh. want infighting over, amongst my heirs. Yeah. You know, at one point, um, three quarters of Germany was owned by the church, and a third of the UK were owned by the church, and th- that's how they did it. It was like the most successful business strategy ever. You know, like I could probably learn something from the way that they do things. Wow. Well, we have a lot of assignments. We have a big reading list. This has been like a, a wonderful uh, semester of, of college in, in, in a quick, uh, quick conversation. I, I knew it was going to be something special when we talked to you. So thanks a lot for enlightening us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And if anybody listening has any ideas for me, then uh, do, do please reach out. You can find my website, nourishbalancethrive.com. My email address is chris at nourishbalancethrive.com. And if you'd like to, maybe I could link, send you some links to some of the podcasts that I've done that have shaped my thinking. Yeah, uh, tons of, yeah. You know, do you know what? It was Stephanie Welsh that okay. at the Ancestral Health Symposium in 2013 that originally set me off on this path. And I did a couple of interviews with her. And in one of those interviews, I said, nuclear family, what's that? And she goes, yeah, you don't know what that is? I'm like, no, I don't. And then I, re- I was like, shit, I've just made a choice. And I didn't even realize <laughs> I was making a choice, right? And that was kind of, what, that was the moment where all of this started. That was probably not less than, Probably not more than two years ago now. So yeah, I should give that tip to Stephanie Welsh for sending me down this route. It's uh, been a, an avenue of much intellectual curiosity, shall we say. Uh, and we, you can listen to shows with her on Nourish Balance Thrive podcast. Yeah, it's exactly. all right. So we did the most recent podcast was on her ideas for gender segregated communal living. And, you know, that's maybe an alternative to the co-housing strategy that I just described. And, and maybe that will appeal to you more than what I said. And we also did another podcast on circumcision as male genital mutilation is, is what it should really be called and needs to really stop. And any hospital that says they're doing evidence-based medicine should not be doing circumcision. But again, that's another default. I mean, not so much in the UK, but when you have a baby here in the US, they just like Sure. You don't like check the status of the father and they just go ahead and do this surgical procedure, which I think is male genital mutilation. But yeah, so we did a podcast on on that. that I thought was also very interesting, but again, quite difficult <laughs> to hear, especially if it's something you can't undo. Uh, yeah, it's almost certainly going to be the case. So, uh, yeah, she, Stephanie's been great. Uh, well, the gender segregated communal living, uh, I was telling you my um, my, my car ride uh, passenger down at P 
Paleo FX a couple of years ago was talking about, she had a really sincere interest in this and was trying to organize such a community. And, you know, she spoke very eloquently. It made a lot of sense. There's a lot of research and it was kind of a way to get the best of both worlds because you could uh, engage with your monogamous partner in privacy and uh, live that sort of life. But you also had a way to go and mix with, you know, 20 females at the same time routinely as part of your experience and the kids would play together. And so you kind of had this uh, setup, this physical setup that would support it, kind of like your ski lodge with the mini huts. Uh, But it was you know, it was a mind, mind blowing to think of something different than uh, driving through the neighborhoods and looking at the single family homes everywhere right. that were so programmed to think this is this is life. And there's, right. you know, there's other other ideas out there. Right. right. All right. Yeah. Man. And I think it's I think it's important to appreciate that the way that we do things is weird, meaning it's unusual. It's both the acronym and it's very, very unusual. The rest of the world don't do it like this. Like there's somebody somewhere in the world that's listening to this podcast going, what the hell is this guy talking about? This is like what everybody does. What is this weird thing? What is this nuclear family? What is this, you know, suburban house that you speak of? We don't do it like this. And that is most of the world is not doing this weird thing. So I think it's important to understand that we are in a very tiny bubble looking outwards. Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. <sighs> Chris you see Kelly. Everywhere now I've said that. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show, man. That was a that was a wild one. I appreciate it very much. Listeners, go over and check out Nourish Balance Thrive podcasts for more good stuff. We can still take the free quiz on the on the homepage. Yeah, uh, so I, I'm a software engineer by training, and I developed a. An analysis, I like to call it. You could call it a quiz. You click on radio buttons for seven, uh, seven minutes, and then I can use your answers, your subjective life experience to use machine learning to predict the results, some of the testing that we do in our clinical practice. So, for example, you're an athlete, you care about hemoglobin, that predicts sports performance, VO2 max. Well, I can predict whether or not your hemoglobin is low after you've spent seven minutes clicking on radio buttons it's kind of a a neat trick that we can do um using data uh that's kind of my background is computer science and data science so yeah you can come to the front page of our website and you'll find the link to take a seven minute analysis Uh, a leaky gut can be predicted which is such a big problem that a lot of people don't uh, think about or are aware of yeah so gut dysbiosis um yeah which may imply leaky gut yeah you're right yeah Good stuff. All right. Thank you, Chris Kelly. Nourish, Balance, Thrive. Thank you, listeners. Hey, folks, how about a non-drinker telling you what kind of alcohol you should drink? That's right. It's pseudo-sommelier Brad Kearns here to recommend dry farm wines. Why? Because if you choose to drink, I want you to be healthy and make a superior choice to the mainstream commercial wines. Listen to my podcast with Dry Farm Wines founder Todd White. The insights were astonishing, especially that most all commercial wines are loaded with dozens of chemicals that the FDA allows in your wine but don't have to be listed on the label. And the sugar, oh my goodness, the sugar levels can be as much or more per liter than Coca-Cola but difficult to taste due to the acidity in the wine. Dry Farm Wines is a membership club where you're shipped hand-picked wines from old-world family-run vineyards in France, Italy, Greece, and Sicily. These wines come from non-irrigated vineyards hundreds of years old that deliver a tastier, higher antioxidant grape, and they're independent lab certified to be completely free from chemical additives and naturally 100% sugar-free. 
That's right, the sugar was allowed to ferment out instead of be arrested by chemical intervention in the name of pleasing the average consumer palate that has a sweet tooth. The Dry Farm Wines Club has taken off like crazy because ancestral and keto enthusiasts, people who care about their health, appreciate a sugar-free wine. You'll enjoy the variety, the taste, and the pleasant sensation in the aftermath of burning through the alcohol buzz and going on with your life without a hangover. So if you care about your carb intake and your overall health, Dry Farm Wines has a special promotion for podcast listeners. Get your first bottle for a penny when you enroll at dryfarmwines.com slash brad or click on the Dry Farm Wines at the bradkerns.com shopping page. Cheers.